how delighted Gail and I are to be partnering with the likes of uh, Pastor Brent and Janice Sharp. We are so proud of being involved with them and uh, delighted in what God's doing with us as a community. And hi! <laughs> this morning, don't have a lot of time because we were singing sweet. So I'm going to hurry it along. I'm going to try to convince you this morning to suffer with us during the season of Lent. It should be a very horrible and wonderful time if you want to jump in with us. My text this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews. And uh, it's uh, Hebrews 11 and 1 that says, Now faith is being sure of something we hope for, which is really a confusing way of saying it. Because hope always means you're not sure. And yet faith is being sure of a hope and certain of a thing you don't see. So we're talking about a, a sureness and a certainty that's based on another kind of level than what normally is understood as sureness and certainty. He said, this is what the ancients were commended for, this business of faith. Faith is a funny thing because we're following and loving a person that we cannot see. And, but we know him as real on some level. But that knowing isn't exactly like other kinds of knowings. It's a different kind of knowing. We can go outside and we know the sun is shining. We can point to it. The way we know God is not like that. It's on a different kind of realm. And the knowing that we have inside our hearts about God is a knowing of the heart, but the mind is a little in question. So it's a knowing that has a little bit of maybe not in it, as well as maybe in it. And there's a little uncertainty in the certainty, at least from the mind's perspective. But that's exactly the way God designed it to be. It should confuse you a little. Faith, this business of faith. The truth is, is that God is like a mysterious friend. He, uh, the, more, <laughs> the more encounters I've had with him, I came to him really with an open heart when I was 14 years old. And... The more encounters I've had with him, the more questions I have. The deeper I plunge as I study and as I read, and I do a lot of reading, the more I find myself wondering and having more questions. But the interesting thing is they're not questions that foster doubt in me as much as they're questions that foster awe in me. Paul, when he was wrote to the Romans in Romans 11, there's a piece of scripture here that we know was used in the earliest uh, gatherings of Christians as part of liturgy. And they would say this and pray these words together. And Paul quotes, he says, Oh, watch it. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He opens it up by saying depth. In other words, it's bigger than one would think. How unsearchable his judgments Unsearchable is a mystery word. And his paths, you just can't trace them. It means that God isn't always logical. <laughs> you know, logic means you can look at an event and back up and see what was causal. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's logical. But God is what a philosopher would call or a theologian would call teleological, which means this. A F Z P L D Q 
He got the cue all right, but you don't know how. That's God. He gets done what God wants to get done, but he's, his path of getting there, you're not going to trace it. So you might as well understand that if you're going to approach God, you can't get your mind around him. Your mind cannot map him. You cannot trace him. All we can do is relinquish our minds into God, not try to wrap our minds around God. And so he says, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths, we can figure it out. And then he starts asking questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Truth is, faith has many more questions than it has answers. For from him and through him and to him is everything. It's not from us, through us, for him. But this whole thing of faith really started with him. We would never seek him had he not put the seek in us to seek him. It's called prevenient grace and theology. God somehow, this is all wrapped out about him pulling us, his creation. And so he pulls us into this relationship where we say to him be glory forever. See, lots of questions here. This sort of references what's later referred to as the via negativa. It's the negative way. In other words, it's also called apophatic theology. What it means is simply is that we humans in the long run, we don't know much about God. And I don't care how long you've been in this deal, the longer you're in this deal, you just start getting a little more full of awe and a little less certain. God designed it that way. Now, don't misunderstand me. I knew when I was in my 20s, I had God down. I knew exactly what needed to be done. I knew what was going on. I knew, in fact, I could tell you and preached often on five clear ways to always have victory in Christ and sold a lot of cassette tapes doing it. Seven keys to complete prosperity and a good life, Right? And then I lived for five minutes and walked with people and walked in their shoes and listened to their stories and watched on things unfold. Precious people have horrible stories. I could not find any causality and people that should have had none, no good happen in their lives, have so much good happen in their lives. And it gets confusing. The fact is, is that this whole business of following God and living in a world that's fallen is jacked up with mystery. Now, I think there's some things we know pretty clearly, but even the stuff we know clearly is right next door to or wrapped in mystery. For instance, we know that God is good. There's no question about that. God is good. He is not evil. That is clear, and it's stated over and over and over in Scripture and in the lives of the saints God is good. And yet, if God is good and not evil, how can evil exist? Mystery. Or another example of it is Scripture. And many of our own experiences, they tell us, and if you've been a person who's prayed much, you know prayer changes things. <laughs> it was um, uh, an old adage that Methodist adage that things happen when we pray that don't happen when we don't. That's Wesley. And it's true. If you've ever leaned into your prayer life, you realize that 
things actually change when you pray. I, I, I double dog dare you to pray about something. A decision, a situation, a relationship. If you will lean into it and pray and cry out to God with a humble heart, something will start to change. Well, here's the complexity or the confusion or the mystery is that sometimes when you pray, it changes the negative things. But other times when you pray, it, instead of changing the negative things, all that happens is you're, you, there's a courage that's communicated to you that enables you to walk through the negative thing that won't change. And you have the sense it's never going to change. But instead of changing it, you get the strength to go through it. Sometimes my prayers make me win. Other times, all they do is simply give me a tenacity to stick in there even when I'm going to lose. I wish I could figure out how it worked. Here's more knowing and mystery. I know God forgives. I mean... When I betrayed my faith, when I betrayed God, when I betrayed myself, when I betrayed people I've loved, God forgives me, has forgiven me. I know that. What I don't get is why. I would have killed me. I know others who would have killed me. But it seems that in the mind of God, the definitive event, the the largest issue in his mind is the cross. And that the cross screams so loudly that your failure or your successes don't matter in the light of it. It's like lighting a match during the day outside. You really can't even see it hardly unless you're looking right at the person's hand. Why? Because the sun is so much bigger than that match. You light it in the darkness and everybody's eye gets caught. Jesus' cross was like the sun to God. He doesn't care more about your failure than he does about the cross. And somehow because of that, he forgives us. But not just forgives us. Because if he forgave us without changing us, there would be something wrong about forgiving us. But in the actual forgiveness, there is a transformation. There's a, there's a dampening of the thing that made us want to sin. And not only that, not only is there a dulling of that, there's a restoration of innocence. And it's as, it's as if you never sinned. If you get it, if you understand the dynamic of the blood of Christ and you understand the dynamic of the cross, it's as if God makes it like you never failed. Who'd a thunk of this? I've also noticed that no matter what has happened in my life, whether good or ill, in the lives of those that I've watched, that over time, God can take the worst situation and work it into something good. So much so that some people think he does bad to get the good. I don't think God ever does bad to get good. I don't. I just think he's so dang good. Can I say that? He's so good. I can't I can say that? Thank you. <laughs> he's so good that he's able to take the worst that hell can bring and bring such good out of it that you look back and say oh my gosh I'm actually better because that happened even though you never choose it to happen who is this being who is he who is this God that we don't see 
that we know, but we don't know, that we're confident of, but we don't know where that comes from. I think a mature faith is okay with not knowing. And it doesn't try to remove the mystery. I told you I used to try to remove it all the time. I used to think if I could just figure out exactly why that prayer wasn't answered, the next time I can guarantee someone they'll get that answer. And not realizing that sometimes in our zealousness for faith, we really are trying to duplicate something from the ancient world that God hated. It's called witchcraft. You know what witchcraft is? It's wanting to control events and people. They would pull incantations out of books, words out of books, and speak them over people and circumstances and do certain kinds of rituals so that they would control people and events. I've watched it over the years. People that are learning about faith, learning about confession, learning about the power of scripture, learning about intercessory prayer, thinking that those things are in their control. And you hear them them tell their stories. And when they tell a story of a healing, they said, yeah, bless God, I just believed the word and I just stood upon the word and and I just made it, you just trusted God and by my faith, I brought it to pass. I think, well, praise your holy name. Really? You did all that, did you? I always listen. Who gets praised here? There's a story in the Bible where one of Paul's friends, Epaphroditus, Almost died. And you know what Paul says? He said he almost died. But God spared him. And he spared me the sorrow of losing him. Now, were they confessing God's word? I'm sure they were. Were they claiming his promise? I absolutely believe they were. But they weren't claiming it as though it was something they controlled. They were standing on God's word in an absolute surrender and trust in a God who's good and big, but whom we don't always get. There was no control. It was more a surrender to control. It was like David, who's praying for his baby boy, who's dying. And he's fasting and he's praying. And the scripture says he was trusting that God would turn it around. After seven days, nights, praying all night, fasting. Scripture says the baby died. David got up, washed his face, ate some food, went to worship in the temple and said, well, he's not staying with me. I'm going to go to him. And kept following God. Why didn't God change that? I don't know. I used to know. People on TV still seem to know. I think that we can learn some things we can be confident of that help us navigate towards the good and towards the better. But, but more often than not, I, th- I think we have to remember that faith isn't an exact science. It's not something that gives us control. It has mystery in it. And there's something wonderful because of its mystery. And I think that our modern minds love because we want control. We want to figure things out and cut things up and dissect it up and make sure we understand it so that somehow we can make sure it happens again and again, and we're not like that person who had that trouble. There's an impulse in us for that. I'm suggesting to you that impulse is us wanting to be God. There's nothing beautiful about it at all. When we were kids, (laughs) Cub Scout, eight years old, curious. We went out of the woods, you know, it was late. We had done our Cub Scout stuff, and it was like 11 o'clock at night, and so we're sneaking out, 
just the boys. We're looking for some animal to investigate. And, uh, you know, we found us a frog. It was a bunch of them, and we were chasing them, and they were just a gaggle of boys' legs, you know, and all these frogs leaping around, and somebody snagged Froggy, you know, grabbed us and got one! So we all grabbed our scout-issued jackknives because we wanted to see what was going on inside this froggy. And uh, so we argued about who the surgeon was, and whoever won got the knife out and started to go after it. And within just a few moments, the little frog was dead. It's laid there. You know, once the life left, nobody cared. There's no mystery. The mystery was gone. The curiosity was vaporized. You know, sometimes when you try to dissect things, you kill them. Some things need to be left alone. Some things need to just be observed and awed and watched. See, this is what faith is about. This is why we have the stories of the saints through history. This is why we look at the biblical text and we go, we see, why was it this way? Why did it change like this? A lot of times there's no consistency. Even when Jesus' healing ministry, sometimes he spit on people. Sometimes he just said something to them. But if you want to follow the story, sometimes people were healed, sometimes people weren't. If there's anything true, there's a lot of uncertainty. And the beauty of it is, we're supposed to lean into that. I think faith is supposed to have mystery, and I think what we should do is run at God with the joy of knowing we can't figure him out. It shouldn't make us run from him. It automatically us run right at him. And just in the back of our minds thinking, I'm just going to get more questions. <laughs> I think this is what love is all about. It's loving this being whom we will not see until we die or until Jesus comes. And it's following this knowing that isn't really knowing, this confidence that really isn't a confidence. It's a hope. But we just sojourn toward it with this abandon with this sense of impulse from the heart. Now, don't misunderstand Christianity. I think it's a lot about that more than it's about us perfecting our lives and trying to perform for the Lord. Watch me read my Bible. I'm not saying you shouldn't read your Bible or shouldn't do stuff that is a practice. I think that's important. But watch this text. This is Revelations 2. Jesus is talking to, this is after the resurrection, he's talking through John to the churches, and he says, I know your deeds. You guys are hard workers. And man, are you perseverant. You stick in there. I know you can't tolerate wicked people. You, you've got a level of holiness that's good. You're not, letting it, you're not letting your community be spiraling down. But you've tested people who claim to be apostles but aren't. You found them false. So they have a good sense of, of good theology. And you've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, even when it was hard. Maybe stuff was taken from them because, or they didn't get jobs because they were committed to Christ and wouldn't participate in public pagan worship and lost because of it. So all these things, he says, you've not grown weary, you've hung in there and you do what's right, yet I hold this against you. You don't love me like you did. This is bigger than your perseverance. This is bigger than your understanding of truth. This is bigger than your level of holiness. You don't love me 
like you did. You've forsaken your first love. So he says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent. I'll talk to you next week about repent. And do the things you did at the first. If you don't repent, I'm going to have to remove your lampstand. In other words, you won't be able to be the kind of light in the culture that you're in. You won't be able to be the kind of light that I've called you to be because being a light isn't about being right. Being the, right, the light isn't just about believing the right things. Being the light is about being in love with a being you cannot see and do not know, not completely. All of us get that sometimes you have to lean into relationships like friendships. And sometimes your relationship kind of wanes and you've got to call her up or call him up and, hey, why don't we get together and sort of rekindle the friendship. All of us get that in marriage, if you're married, you have to keep doing that. Year after year, you have to keep reinvigorating. You have to lean into that relationship. You have to be intentional about it. We all get that. That's why we're doing this date uh, night. We, date night or date, date, date your mate weekend, which is going to be sweet in uh, Kansas City. Here we come, right? It's going to be way cool. I'm trying to figure out who's going to preach here Sunday morning. Preston. <clears throat> that might have been the Lord. You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> the point is, is that why do we do that stuff? Because we know that we have to be intentional about our relationships. Friends, what I'm encouraging you to see is that this thing we do with God is not just stuff we do for God. It's God, the person. He is, as the philosopher or the theologian would say, ontologically present. That means he's really with us. He is a person. And even though he's a being on some level that we don't understand being, there's an unknowingness of what even he is. He's outside of time, which freaks our heads out. But he's real and he's present and he wants us to run at him and he wants us to celebrate him. Somehow, listen to this text. This is the reason is Acts 3 and 19. Repent then, turn to God so your sins are wiped out. Wiped out sins, great. That times of refreshing, everybody say times of refreshing. Times of refreshing come from the Lord. This is the goal of Lent. This is the thing we're trying to do. What they found out was hundreds of years ago, as these catechumens, these people that were getting ready to be baptized and they were preparing their hearts and the leaders would say, listen, you need to make sure your heart's open. This is the most critical thing you could ever do is come into the faith and think it through. Sit down and count the cost. And so they would fast and they would open their hearts and they would say, God, help me. And they would lean into God with their fasting. I'll explain to you why that's so important. And they would, they would have such an amazing time that the leaders looked and said, dude, that is sweet. Well, they didn't say exactly that way. But they were going, that's so sweet. And so they said, why don't we all do this? And they were okay. So the whole communities of faith started jumping in and for 40 days, once a year, ran at God. They went on a date trip. What'd you call it? Date your mate. I get it mixed up with date night. Is there something else we did date night? Okay. Date your God for 40 days. Now, here, here's what we're asking you to do, three things. We're going to purposely run after God in this season. We've been doing it. There's three things we're asking you to do. Number one is we're encouraging you to fast something that you really love during this 40 days. It could be some certain foods. It could be a favorite meal in the day. In fact, 
Four of the Wednesday nights, we're going to have this Wednesday night, we don't have soup, but the next couple we have soup, and there's one that you're during spring break where we don't have a meeting, and then another couple. So there's four Wednesday nights where we're going to have soup. What we're going to ask you to do is skip dinner. You're only going to fast for three or four hours. You will not die. But skip dinner so that when you come to church and you drive by McDonald's, there's something in you that goes, I want, I want that Big Mac. I want it so bad. But that you say, but I want you more, God. See, you're not fasting to torment yourself. You're fasting the thing that you're normally used to, that you move toward, that has a place in your life. And instead of, instead of that food or whatever it is that has a place in your life, you say, no, you don't have place in my life right now because I'm asking God to sit right in that. And the thing that nudged you toward that thing, you're redirecting to say, you know what? I may love Big Macs, God, but I love you more. It's not unlike when you first started dating. Those of you that are married or if you've fallen in love, you know, when you first started dating, you had a life. And when you get married and fall in love, you basically reorient your whole life. You push some things out that you used to do. You bring this person and you're making room for them. That's what we're talking about. Making room for God. If you wanted to get in my car right now, there's stuff in my front seat. I would have to say, okay, come on in. But I have to take the stuff and move it out to make room for you. Right? See, what you're trying to do is push stuff out of the way. Some of you may want to Give up going out to eat or TV or chocolate (laughs) or candy or coffee (coughs) or the internet or texting. (gasps) You ask more, too much. Maybe... (laughs) Maybe that caramel macchiato. Maybe Facebook. Huh. Wait. The room is spinning. We had one person in the community, a gal, who's a, a, a teacher, French teacher, at one of the high schools, local high schools, who gave up makeup for 40 days. She said it was the most horrible experience in my life because those high school students are merciless show up every day without any makeup on she said she was the she was running the uh, cheerleader she was the the uh, sponsor for the cheerleaders and they had one huge event where all the moms came all spit you know Oklahoma and Texas girls are I can (laughs) I'm not saying anything about anybody here (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, they were all, you know, to the nines. And here she was. <laughs> she said, but it was the most wonderful thing. Not that I'll ever do it again, she said. <laughs> but she said, it made me see some things about myself, about some places things hold in my life. See, that's what it's about. See, because you, you, we think we're pretty good. Well, not all the time. but We generally think we're okay, generally okay. But there's parts of our lives that are hidden, that when you push on them, they get messed with. Do you remember the scripture where Jesus said, some sold the word, and after they sold the word, Satan immediately comes? It's like you step on the toes of the enemy when you do anything intentional toward God. The enemy responds. And, and the old cartographers, these were the map makers, they would draw maps out, and they knew, because they had you know, 
had gone around and investigated. They knew where mountains were and forests were and rivers were and lakes were in a lot of the places. But then there were parts of the world that no one had ever mapped. And you know what they used to put in those spots? They would have the whole map organized and they would have these areas that were sort of pale and not mapped out. And they would have pictures of dragons. And they would say in those areas where dragons lie. Now you know as well as I do, all of us have some dragons. Just go without sleep. Go without, get a little hungry. Get a little tired. And all of a sudden, you start manifesting. (laughs) You got dragons in you. And one of the things you find out when you start fasting like this, giving up some stuff and redirecting your love for God, you start finding out that there's stuff in you that gets messed with and it makes it a horrible time. You know, one of the things I do, I did it last year, it's the first time I did it last year and I'm doing it again this year, which I hate to admit I'm doing it. But for this 40 days... I drive the speed limit. I hate driving the speed limit. I, because when I get into the car, it's like I become a different person. It's, I feel like James Bond. And my job is to beat everyone on the road. It's a horrible thing. Right, some of you have this disease too. So if you ever see me zooming by you on the highway and you say, oh, that look like Pastor Ed. Remember, it was really James. <laughs> Don't judge me, lest you be judged. <laughs> but, but during this time, I drive the speed limit. I'm telling you what, when I get up to that speed limit, I get up to it quick. I'll give you that. I mean, I pounded to get 25 or 35. And Jenks, 30 miles an hour in Jenks. What are they thinking? So I go, 30 miles an hour. And then I just, you know, but I'm telling you what, it messes with me as I'm driving that speed limit. Everybody's zooming by me. But when they do, you know what I say to the Lord? I say, Lord, see, I love you more than beating those people. And you know how much I want to beat them. Now, the only solace my flesh got was after doing it about 25, 30 days, it dawned on me that if I could beat most of the people at the beginning to get to the speed limit, and I just went the speed limit, I trapped them behind me. (laughs) I was horrible. See, because even when you're holy, you're evil. I'm telling you, you'll figure out a way. You know, you you give up chocolate, and you'll eat, uh, what do they call that stuff that isn't chocolate that tastes like it a little bit? Carob. You'll think of that, you evil person. You will. (laughs) Give up TV. All of a sudden, you'll see episodes on the internet. I'm telling you, get ready, get ready, get ready to be a deceptive little creature because you be that. But that's the joy of it, is that you start messing with yourself and opening your heart. Okay, I need to shut up. Uh, Not only am I encouraging you to, to do some fasting, we're encouraging you to take God breaks during the day, two or three times a day. Pray the Our Father three times a day. Or go Google on the internet the divine office and find the ways that churches, people in history have prayed two or three times a day, praying different psalms. There's all kinds of stuff on the internet you can get access to. Just download it before Lent (laughs) if you're giving up the internet. Uh, The third thing is come and join us on Wednesday nights and be a part of this thing. Bottom line is 
what we're encouraging you to do is step up with us. If you've never done Lent, or it just seems like a dead thing to you, I wrote a book about six years ago called The Vow. And it really is not, it's not talking about, it's not talking about making promises that are, you know, or like, uh, what do they call it? Swearing by heaven. That's not talking about that. But it's talking about, the vow is talking about the idea of devotion. And this was specifically done in response to some of what we're experiencing as a community in Lent. I'll give you a free copy of this book if you want it tonight, if you come at six o'clock. What we're going to do is spend just 45 minutes or so for those of you that have never done this to help you map out. I'll talk to you about the different kind of disciplines you can participate in, silence, frugality, I mean, just different stuff that you can do that we'll talk about and then how you might express that in a Lenten expression, be able to ask any questions that you have, do it with you so we can pray through you having a plan. Lent starts Wednesday. So please come, be a part of it with us, and don't forget Fat Tuesday, which means you can be naughty and eat lots of pancakes. All right? Grace to you. Let's, I pray your Lenten journey is a horribly wonderful one. God bless you. Let's all stand together. As we close today, let's lift our voices. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Beautiful. There is something about the 11 o'clock service. As you go today, as always, we want to remind you of God's blessing for your life. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you safe in his arms. May he make his beautiful face shine on you. May he be gracious to you. May we be guided in our everyday life by his grace. In the midst of our mystery, may we know that his countenance is looking at us with love. And may he give you peace, a peace that passes all understanding. May it guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Go in peace today. If you need prayer for anything, our prayer team will be here at the front. If you can uh, sign up to help provide soup for these Wednesday evening services, you can drop that card at the desk out there. Go in peace today.